Policy Forum Pod is supported by advertising provided by our podcast host, so that we can keep making what you love. Great pods that tackle the important issues. For more great podcasts, go to policyforum.net forward slash podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for all those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is a production of PolicyForum.net and we are based at Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. Crawford School is Australia's leading graduate policy school. You can find out all about our wide range of courses that would take your policymaking career to the next level. Go to crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study for more. Now, next to Australia's bushfire crisis, which we've covered extensively on the podcast over the last few weeks, the issue that has really been dominating national and international headlines is the novel coronavirus, now officially called COVID-19. On 31st of January, the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency and later warned that the virus could be the spark that becomes a bigger fire. The death toll reached a grim landmark this week with over 1,100 people now killed by the virus and tens of thousands more confirmed as having been infected. In Australia, 15 cases have so far been confirmed as we record this podcast. And in an attempt to contain its spread, the government imposed a travel ban from China from the beginning of February, allowing only citizens, permanent residents and their immediate family members back into the country. And in doing so, left about 100,000 Chinese international students stranded overseas. Meanwhile, the Chinese government has come under fire for not managing the outbreak effectively and silencing and punishing those who deviate from official party lines. When word of Dr. Li Wenliang's death emerged from China, a doctor who had tried to warn about the coronavirus early on and who was subsequently disciplined by local police for spreading, quotes, untrue speech, tensions within China over censorship have intensified further. So today on the pod, we want to ask, what exactly can we expect from the spread of coronavirus? And what should a policy response to this global health emergency look like? And also, how does the outbreak affect Australia-China relations? So to discuss this complex topic, we've invited two public health specialists and a China expert to join us on our Policy Forum pod panel today. First up is Nick Coatsworth. Nick is a consultant physician in infectious disease medicine at Canberra Hospital, and he's also a PhD scholar at the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance. Hi, Nick. G'day, Martin. Next is Yun Jiang. 
She is a researcher at the ANU Center on China in the World, and she's also co-editor of China Nissan, a China analysis newsletter. Hello. Hello. Very happy to be here. Great to have you here. And last but certainly not least is Professor Martin Kirk, and he's Martin with a Y. It's the first time we've had in the studio another Martin with a Y. Martin is an NHMRC Career Development Fellow at the ANU College of Health and Medicine, and he's worked for over twenty years in state, territory, and Federal health departments in the areas of food, water, and infectious diseases. Hi, Martin. Hi, Martin. Nice to be here. That's so weird saying hello, Martin, and have someone say hello, Martin, back to me. Great to have you all here.、Um, every day we hear on the news about more people who have died or who have been infected by the novel coronavirus, and the World Health Organization has just come out saying that the virus is more powerful and bringing serious consequences than any terrorist attack. Can accomplish. So, a question to you all: Just how serious is this virus? From my perspective, it's really unclear about the clinical characteristics at the moment. That's one of the things, and I think that has been a real challenge for governments around the world, is to understand how severe the illness is. But one thing we do know is that it does have the capacity to spread, and it can, it may be difficult to control. So, we've had that previous experience in two thousand and three of the severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS. And that was、um, a really devastating outbreak for China, Hong Kong, Toronto in Canada, and、um, it caused wide repercussions around the globe. So I think that's one of the main things. It's not only about the illness it causes; it's also about some of the implications of the the measures that that countries have taken to actually stop the the actual infection from spreading. I think、um, I agree with with Martin's comments. I'd, I'd also remind our listeners that、um, this virus is is the novel twenty nineteen coronavirus. It has been around since December first, twenty nineteen, and we're only February thirteen, twenty twenty. So one of the real challenges for、um, clinicians, for public health experts, and for governments is to actually understand、um, this virus. Um, how the transmission dynamics, in particular,、um, we've got an impression at the moment、uh, of this basic reproductive number, which is really important, called the R naught, which is basically how many people are infected、um, from a single case, and we think that R naught is somewhere between 1.8 to 2.4, probably towards the higher side of that, and that has a lot of implications for control of the virus and how vigorous your control efforts have to be in terms of social. Distancing in terms of isolation,、um, and we have to remember that the advice is changing on a daily basis. So it's no good having a look at the advice last week and trying to remember it. As a clinician,、um, as a public health physician, we have to look at that on a daily basis. I think to know exactly how bad the outbreak will be, it's very important to have.、Um, Good and correct data, and currently there are some doubts about numbers coming out of the Chinese authorities. If the numbers are wrong, then obviously the conclusion we can draw is wrong as well. Now, before we get in any deeper into the intricacies of the outbreak itself, I'd like to understand a bit more about the virus. According to the World Health Organization, the current outbreak has been caused by. As you said, a new strain of the coronavirus that was first detected in Wuhan in China in、uh, December last year. Martin, can you tell us a little bit more about how the virus spreads? How are new cases detected? So the virus is one which actually is thought to have been resident in an animal reservoir, 
and this is what happened with SARS. It was it's come out of the animal populations and. Um, somehow it's got into the human population. It's what we call jumped species. And from there, it appears to be spread from contact with another infected person or a, or a surface or droplets. So it's not airborne as far as we know. And I think all of the indications about the way the outbreak's moving, that we'd say that's the case. So it, it's really contact with a person or a surface that's got the virus on it or droplets so that when someone sneezes or coughs if, they, if they're unwell. Um, that's the way it's being spread at the moment. You mentioned before that it came from an animal originally. You talked about SARS as the previous example of something like this. How common is it for infectious diseases to jump species like that? Well, for some infections, it's actually really common. So we have gastrointestinal infections like Salmonella or Campylobacter that Really, they're often found in the animal species and because we eat food and it's transmitted by food and it, it's really jumping into humans. So it's quite common and, in fact, many different types of emerging infections are actually originally um, present in animals and they might not even cause disease. A good example is Ebola. So you've got the Ebola virus probably lives in bats or some other animal and doesn't cause disease and then when humans encroach on the environment and the animals come in contact or, or in, through some means through hunting or actually just getting closer to the humans, then occasionally you'll have um, viruses or other, other organisms jumping species. I mean, the challenge here, of course, is that it's, it's a population immunity issue. This is um, for, for all of us humans on the planet. This is a um, new virus to which we have limited or, or no immunity, hence its capacity to spread. Coronaviruses themselves have been around um, since the 1960s. They were first discovered then, probably existed um, many, many decades or centuries before that. Um, so typically they would cause a, a common cold. But in this situation, we're finding that there is a lot of lower response respiratory tract infection, that means pneumonia. Um, and there's a lot of people who have a variation in disease which can be almost asymptomatic. Um, that is, you don't get much at all. You get a little bit of a sniffle. Now, one of the things we don't understand um, and we used to understand from SARS is that um, its potential um, to spread might be amplified by those people um, with pneumonia who are coughing a lot and you get this sort of super spreader phenomenon um, where one person can actually go on to infect far more than 2.4 um, people. So you're talking there about people with sort of underlying health issues already? Or... Not necessarily. People who the virus sets up a very severe infection in. So there's a higher, higher viral load in the respiratory tract. And so when you expectorate, you can expect to see a lot more virus in the air. Um, and whilst it's not airborne, that virus um, can usually travel about one metre and then it settles on surfaces and then that can be transmitted from person to person. That all sounds very tricky. What should governments be looking out for when responding to the outbreak? Well, I think um, governments all around the world have been racing to respond, and I think many countries have. There, there have been quite different responses around the globe, but the key things that they need to do is obviously enact their preparation plans. And the, the world has actually had preparation plans for other respiratory infections, and that is flu, because we've been concerned in the infectious disease community about outbreaks like the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic re re-emerging and causing global pandemics and lots of mortality associated with it. 
So implementing those plans that have been prepared, and lots of countries have done that. I think the other things they need to do is they definitely need to be on top of emerging information that's coming out of China and out of countries that have been seeing cases and really trying to understand the epidemiology. So that's the patterns of disease and their spread. And some of the features Nick was just talking about, like what proportion of people are asymptomatic and can they actually transmit the infection when they don't have any symptoms? So those types of things are really critically important to understand because they affect what kind of control measures are going to work. The other things they can do is obviously at the moment what does appear to be true is that tracing people who've had contact and actually limiting their social interactions with other people is potentially a very effective way of controlling the infection. So you're talking there about putting people in quarantine or or self-quarantine? We tend to call it a self-isolation. You know, there's... It's, there's a, it's a fairly grey area, you know, what do you call quarantine or self-isolation? I mean, we used to call quarantine, you know, a ship that stays offshore. Um, whereas here we're saying you can stay at home, you use a mask, if, and um, we recommend you don't go out and you keep a distance from people. Um, and it's not mandated in most instances. It's not, we're not saying you have to, it's going to be people watching your door. It's what we would call self-isolation. So there's a whole lot of measures that countries can enact. But the key thing is enacting your preparation plans and being alert to new information and following up cases rapidly and the people they've had contact with. I I would say they're the the things that I would say that governments around the world should be doing and they've obviously got to do a whole lot of other things in addition like developing laboratory capacity to be able to detect these infections, which can be a bit tricky as well. But that's all being rolled out in the... World Health Organization is taking a very um, active role in trying to make sure that countries around the globe are actually prepared and able. I mean, just following on that, Martin, I might ask something slightly provocative, um, which is the the movement of human population in in 2020 is massive. Um, The numbers of cases um, external to China – Um, seem to be highest in countries with highly adapted public health and surveillance systems. Is it possible um, that countries with less adapted public health surveillance systems have cases that are currently undetected? And what can we do about that? Look, I think that is absolutely true. You know, there are big, big populations around the globe where there's limited testing capabilities. And a good example might be the continent of Africa. There's been a lot of work to try and help African countries be able to test for the virus. And, you know, I think there's there's a couple of things we need to think about when we're thinking about can a country become infected out of a big outbreak in another country? And it relates to two things here. One is the actual infection pressure in that country, like how many cases do they have per population? And also what kind of... Tr- travel do they have to other countries? So if there's a lot of infections in another country and there's not much travel, then there's not much chance of an epidemic occurring in that second country. But if there's a lot of infections and there's a lot of travel, then there is a much more significant chance of an, of an outbreak occurring in that second country. So I think the world is definitely watching to see what happens in coming months. It, this outbreak's not going as quickly as we we would have expected it's certainly not as quick as pandemic influenza because the incubation period is longer. And so the incubation period is when a person gets exposed and when they end up showing symptoms. How long is that incubation period? Well, there's a lot of 
emerging information coming out, but I think, and we've seen data coming out of China and various other countries. To me, it looks like it's about five, you know, five to sort of seven days is what I'm roughly thinking at the moment. But we're seeing quite a few papers saying as short as three and as long as two weeks. So I'm, I'm thinking that's what, looking at the literature, I'm thinking it's around that sort of five to seven day mark. Um, and certainly we, we'll get more information from the cases that are occurring in both in Australia and other countries because we can actually fairly clearly see when a person got their symptoms and then when the next person that was infected from contact with that person developed their symptoms. So we're going to get a lot of information in coming weeks. What about the measures that China has put in place? China has obviously put millions of people into self-isolation, quarantine. Yun, what's your sense on how effective those have been in containing this disease outbreak? Oh, I think it's important to remember that the initial reaction of the Chinese authorities is actually censorship first. So the virus was first um, detected around early December. It was reported to the World Health Organization on 31st of December. But there was no any um, public health measures taken then. In fact, they detained or punished eight doctors from Wuhan for spreading rumors about the virus, um, one of which um, died recently. It's quite a tragic story about that. It is only until 20th of January when there was a new central directive from Xi Jinping about putting all effort behind containing the virus that, you know, all these drastic measures of locking down the cities, closing down public transport, that start to take effect. So I think China has actually lost valuable time in containing the virus because by then, I think about 5 million people have already left Wuhan. During that time, during those weeks when people were traveling, um, they, there was no public health measures taken. So only afterwards that now we have, we're seeing quite drastic measures of, um, people restricting people's movement. In terms of how effective it is, well, a lot of people have already left. So we're seeing a lot of, you know, people traveling overseas. Um, there's a tourist group in Australia, for example. But I guess, From Chinese authorities' perspective, they want to be seen as doing something. There is a bit doubt of, uh, I'm not a public health health expert, so I'm not sure how effective those, you know, travel restrictions closing down public transport is, but has a big effect on ordinary people. I've heard cases where, for example, people who may have a virus, but they can't actually get to the hospital to get tested. Um, So that's another problem with those drastic measures. It sounds like China was quite slow to respond. Is this trying to, uh, a case of trying to close the stable door after the horse has already bolted? Is, is the damage a, already done? Can I give a counterpoint to that? Because, um, like, I've, I've been watching, you know, China CDC and the Chinese public health system develop over the last 20 years. Not, you know, I'm not an expert in that, but I do understand about how public health works in different countries around the globe. And I would say they actually responded reasonably quickly. And while it might look like they weren't containing it, they would have been doing a lot of investigation and trying to understand. And if we go back to, you know, nearly 20 years to SARS, there were delays of several months there. And their public health system was not as well developed. But in the last 20 years, China has made significant efforts at the central government and at the provincial government level to actually train people to investigate disease and conduct surveillance. And I've been incredibly impressed in recent years about 
how good they've been at some of the things. They are as, you know, they've been doing investigations that are as good as any other, you know, sort of first world country. So I think, you know, we've got to be careful not to confuse control measures with action. You know, it's not only control measures like restricting movement, those types of things, that is action. There's a whole lot of other things like efforts to understand and do things. Um, I totally agree with you. Um, We know that they've been investigating um, this virus for quite a while before the 20th of January announcement, for example. And we know that China has put in a lot of effort into its scientists. It has um, quite a lot of scientists working on this. But science is one thing, but then politics is another thing. So, for example, the local government um, even though knowing that there was an outbreak, did nothing to inform the public at all. In fact, they organized mm. a banquet for 40,000 families just a few days um, before shutting down the city. Yeah. Um, so even though we have all these scientists working and they're great working on these things, but the politics doesn't really follow. Yeah, but I think it's, it's extremely hard in these settings to make good governance decisions about what to do, particularly when it's an emerging virus that hasn't been seen before. So I, you know, I would give a bit of, you know, I think it's incredibly difficult. I would say every government has spent weeks trying to work out what to do. And and funnily enough, they've come up with different ideas about what works and what's important. So, you know, I, I think it, it's easy to say they should have done things differently and we we might do that in six months' time, but it's really hard in the heat of the moment. I mean, you get you get an intersection here at a, at a sort of higher level um, between, um, as as you say, the politics and the science mm. of infectious diseases, which, which which is the sort of the subject of my PhD research. But it's it's intimately connected, and um, what, what Martin's referring to as well is is a sort of blotting of the cop China's copybook in SARS, and that sort of element of mistrust. Uh, with the data that's coming out, um, dates back 17 years. Now, uh, we need to accept that China's moved a long way in terms of its public health um, surveillance apparatus since then. Equally, we need to um, respect that there's a lot of uncertainty around this virus, which is why um, the control measures are changing on a daily basis. But um, it's fascinating to think that um, you know, the science is one thing, but this has global diplomatic economic ramifications, um, every single country potentially being affected, and then China's relationship um, with the world, with Australia, um, quarantining students that are supposed to come out here to start first semester in universities. These are big deal foreign policy issues. Um, and it's not the infectious diseases physicians that are dealing with this. It's the diplomats. It's up at the highest levels of government. Yeah. And I, I have to say, you know, as a, as a public health professional who works in infectious diseases, and we are always trying to control even little outbreaks of, you know, 20 people that have been and eaten a banquet and gotten sick with gastroenteritis. We, we're trying to work out how do we stop that happening again next time. And we have guidance about how we do that. But when when it's very big and heated, what happens is you have your guidance and then the politics comes into play and suddenly they'll be telling you to do something which is far more extreme than your guidance and it's really because it's tapping into public sentiment. So I think there is a whole lot, there's a lot of difficult and confusing elements here. You know, control can sometimes 
not necessarily marry up with science too. I think it's quite um, interesting to see that the doctor who first raised the alarm back in December, he, Dr. Lee, he actually he got the virus and died recently. And then as a consequence of that, now there is a call for freedom of speech on that. Now, I, I don't think it will happen, but it's quite interesting to see that, you know, the public anger around this issue and that has pushed for a lot of actions. And Nick, you mentioned the sort of international relations aspect of that. And I do want to touch on that a little bit later. But first of all, I want to talk about the response a little closer to home. Um, Australia confirmed its first case of coronavirus on the 25th of January. As infection numbers and the death toll climbed and with a public health emergency declared by the WHO, Australia announced that foreign arrivals from mainland China would not be allowed in the country. And Martin, what does that declaration tell us about the severity of this outbreak. Is that an appropriate response? I don't think I can speak too much about the appropriateness. I you know, have to declare that I've been assisting the government with some advice around investigating the outbreak. And one thing I would say is that certainly infection numbers have declined. All of the infections that we've seen in Australia, there have been 15 to date, have had connection with travel back to Wuhan or Hubei province. So we're not seeing them from other provinces. I think what is appropriate is that governments do take concerted action and that they, you know, they're constantly monitoring the impact of the decisions that they're making and and that is certainly something that's happening at the highest levels. I, I, I would have to say I've worked in infectious disease control for 30 years and I haven't seen this degree of concern and action at the national and international levels before. I, you know, I've, I've been through SARS and H1N1 pandemic in 2009 and seen the Ebola outbreak in 2015 in West Africa. And, you know, countries around the globe do put in place measures, but here it's very close to home in that it's happening in our neighborhood in Asia. Um, ideally, we want to work, work together as a community in Asia Pacific and try and make sure that we um, control the infection and maybe hopefully stop it like happened with SARS. And secondly, to learn from what happened and try and improve the system as we go forwards in future years. And this is, the system has come in leaps and bounds, not just in China, but but also in Australia and internationally. I think um, the, the, the presence and the spectre of um, a respiratory virus, because we've all had colds and we all know how easy they spread amongst our childcare centres and our kids bring them home and things like that. But if there's a new one, then there's a there's a legitimate amount of concern um, from from governments. Now, I agree that the word appropriate is a, is a difficult one to ascribe, but e- efficacious. Well, it appears to have been an efficacious decision at the moment to um, restrict that sort of travel. It's an extreme measure when you consider that this is our biggest trading partner, um, and the importance of tourism and, and various other economic aspects um, of the China Australia relationship. But I think it's what what it's reflective of is simply saying this is not a small deal. Um, even if this has a mortality rate of somewhere between one and two percent, if it gets into big populations like China, um, that means a lot of deaths, um, and that 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 is what people are worried about here. The other thing I would say is that um, the Australia is actually we're we're lucky here. We're, we're a great example of how a 
public health units at a state level communicate with the federal government and messages cascade down to emergency departments and general practitioners around the country. Um, So most of our healthcare providers, I hope, and if they're listening out there, I would strongly encourage them. If someone comes in with a a cough or a cold or a runny nose, um, they have all been advised to take a detailed and thorough travel history. Um, and they should all be knowing at the moment exactly where to send um, their patients for testing. Now, um, we have, uh, we're a modern economy. We have, we're very lucky in a lot of ways, but in particular in our public health system, we're very, very lucky um, and able to respond in the way we can. I mean, that's a government response. What about on a population level? You are a uh, consultant physician at Canberra Hospital. Have you seen increased concern from people reporting to the hospital worried that they they may have this? It's interesting. We haven't seen that. Uh, certainly here in the Australian Capital Territory, we haven't identified any cases. The level of concern may be different in the other jurisdictions in Australia where cases have been identified. But People seem to be turning up if they've if they've had travel to China or, or Southeast Asia. Um, they seem to be turning up and declaring that they have, um, which is which is obviously a good thing. But in terms of deep sort of community concern about this, um, we're, we're lucky. You don't really want that because it generates a lot of fear and it, it impairs the response. And and I think because the government, in a sense, has been pretty good at communicating about it, um, we uh, we haven't had that in Australia as yet. So there are actually a lot of concerns among the Chinese diaspora in, Mm. for example, Sydney I know about. I have a few friends uh, that are doctors in Sydney. And there even comes to the point where there are rumors about which clinic had seen a possible case and for tell people to avoid that clinic just because they might have a case there. So there are a lot of rumors spreading around about um, this virus amongst, for example, people on WeChat, a popular popular social media app, which is frequently used by people from mainland China, talking about uh, which district to avoid, which suburbs to avoid, and things like that. So I think the level of concern amongst the Chinese diaspora is quite high. There's a lot of mis- and disinformation about coronavirus out there at the moment. I think I hopped in a taxi yesterday, uh, and I was going somewhere in Canberra, and they, I, I wanted to talk about the weather and they, all they wanted to talk to me about was coronavirus. I didn't tell them what I did. And so they told me some really crazy things. And one of them, you know, was like saying, oh, I think we should stop eating Chinese food from China. And I'm going, you don't need to do that. You know, there's absolutely no problems with that. You know, there's a whole lot of things that he told me which were patently wrong, and, but that's what's circulating. And so I, I think social media is a big part of it, actually, because we don't see it through our traditional news, news outlets. We see it through social media. They have these crazy stories and they're just, I don't know where they're coming from, maybe bots from, you know, somewhere over over the sea. Um, but it's just really the kind of mis- and disinformation that's been circulating is really quite amazing and, and really destructive as well because it just, like Nick said, Generates fear and distrust. You, you were not you were nodding knowingly when uh, Martin mentioned bots from overseas. That no, I'm just thinking that there has been a lot of reports of rising incidents of racism yeah. against people of Chinese ethnicity. Uh, I think I read this morning that someone got evicted from their house because they travel to Malaysia, or you know, people if um, 
person of Chinese appearance maybe even sneeze in public transport, everyone starts to move away. People avoiding eating Chinese restaurants. So yeah, a lot of uh, rising incidents of um, racism direct against the Chinese population in Australia, as well as um, around the world that we've seen cases in Canada, United States, Korea, Japan as well. And it's all wrong. We should just categorically state that all of the basis of that is wrong. You know, the information is not credible that sort of goes anywhere towards supporting that. Yeah, I agree. If you've got a favourite Chinese restaurant in Melbourne, um, you should be going there to eat um, now, <laughs> today, tonight, because you love it. Um, and there's no and there's no basis there's for no your reason. concern. Yun, is the Chinese government doing enough to counter that kind of racism and some of those bizarre sort of scare stories that are coming out? Not quite. So it's, the prejudice is not just about racism. For example, in China, there are people that's very prejudiced against people from Wuhan and Hubei right now. Basically, if you have someone who is just because they were born in Hubei, they get discriminated at the moment in China. And now, in, for example, in Asian countries, they discriminate people against um, people coming from mainland. So this prejudice um, from this coronavirus is... I guess it's not uh, just about racism. It's um, more deeper than it's that. It's localized. Yeah. It's localized. Yeah, yeah. I think the Chinese government is probably not too concerned about what people are doing. I think they're more concerned about what governments are respond, how governments are responding. Well, that's something I want to touch on in part two, but this seems like a good opportunity to take a break. So stay with us, listeners. When we come back, we'll dig further into this. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. 我们回来，所以，请继续我们的谈话。中国和台湾之间的冲突，中国和台湾之间的冲突，中国和台湾之间的冲突，中国和台湾之间的冲突，中国和台湾之间的冲突，中国和台湾之间的冲突，中国和台
But in terms of long-term bilateral relationship, I think it's probably not going to be too much of a obstacle, but it will have a lot of um, impact on, for example, uh, trade and um, investment relationships, at least initially. What's that impact going to look like? Because obviously, uh, Australia's economy is deeply connected with China. Yeah. Uh, and Australia has already lost its budget surplus. It has to deal with the impact of the bushfires. Yeah. It's had to deal with a number of other things which have hit the budget bottom line in a way that the government wasn't expecting. So what is going to be the overall impact on Australia's economy from this? So one, it's going to impact on the Chinese economy, and that has also flow-on effect onto the Australian economy. So what we've already seen with, for example, uh, education export, that's probably going to take a pretty hard hit this semester with um, a lot of students coming back to Australia to study. I think um, one number I saw is more than half of students from China who is supposed to start in Australia are still not in Australia yet. And other than that, there's also a supply chain issue. A lot of um, a lot of goods uh, imported from China, and that probably is going to be affected because you know in China people can't get to work. Uh, basically, factories are shut down, so its economy will be affected, and as a result, its demand for Australian resources will probably be affected as well. At least in the short run, I'm not sure yet if it will affect in the long run. It could be, depends how long the outbreak lasts, it could have rebound pretty quickly. On that question, how long will the outbreak last? Well, look, it's the $64 question. It's hard to say. You know, I think it really depends very much on what happens in the coming weeks and what we see happens in China and some of the other countries in the region where you might expect to see cases, you know, the ones with land borders, for instance, others where there are travel hubs and there haven't been travel restrictions. You know, I, I think it's a very difficult decision for governments. And what I would say about this is that it it's going to take some months before we actually really understand what the outbreak looks like because we're watching very closely in terms of the number of cases being reported by countries around the globe. And you'll find that most countries around the globe are all watching on a daily basis about the number of cases being reported and the number of deaths and where they've occurred and trying to make their own forecasts about what's going to happen. Um, But I think based on previous experience, um, for SARS, I think that was several months, so, you know, so, you know, and I'm hoping it works out like that. And, and that was we, several, several months to get it Well, it was, under it was only a couple of months where there was travel restrictions. I can't remember the exact details, but it certainly, you know, there were cases continuing in Hong Kong and Canada, but it, you know, the, the big reason why there was such concern there is because of its transmissibility. And, and if you remember in SARS, there, many of the people who were infected and lots who died were actually healthcare workers, people like Nick, who cared for infectious, infectious patients and, um, they died. And, you know, so similar to that doctor who reported the outbreak in, in Wuhan, um, there were very many people who died and, Carlos Urbani was one of the the World Health Organization country representatives in Vietnam, and he died of SARS. And you know, so that's one of the big concerns about it is what what impact it has on the health system and the economy and all of that kind of stuff. So there's so many things to weigh up here about 
what's the right course of action. But So I'm hoping that it will only be a Nick, what's your answer to the $64,000 question? How long is this going to last? Yeah, it seems unsatisfactory at the moment to say it depends, but but it really does. One of the things that's going to help is uh, the development, in, and it may have been developed already, Martin, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, an antibody test, because then you can actually see how many of the population have actually been exposed. All we're seeing at the moment is the number of population that's exhibiting disease. So if I'll just give you an example, if out of the 40,000 cases, there's another 200,000 out there that really didn't have much wrong with them, but seem to have been exposed to the virus, then that becomes a bit less of a concern, I think. Um, so we need a we need an antibody test to work out um, exactly the proportion of the population that are developing active disease. That might help us um, decide how serious things are. I'd like to know how many healthcare workers have been infected. I don't know if we've got that data. Um, I mean, obviously we got the publicity that one of them died, but um, you know, as a as a healthcare professional, that would seem to be an important uh, statistic for me personally. But we we don't know, so we have to be prepared that this is going to be. Um, a more prolonged event than we've seen before. And I think it's certainly going to have a bigger effect than SARS. Um, and, and it's definitely had a bigger effect than the Middle East um, respiratory uh, syndrome coronavirus. So this will be the big one for the 21st century so far. So prolonged, what are we talking, a year, two years, longer? It depends how effective those control measures are. It depends whether we get vaccines. It depends whether we get um, adequate antiviral therapy. It's it's so – there are so many contingent factors – I think what we're aiming for, which is probably a better measure, is to get this done and dusted in just a little bit over the time that it took to get SARS um, concluded. That would be an optimistic view, but that is what world governments, the World Health Organization, the Chinese governments, that's what everybody's working towards. And there has been huge efforts. Like what, what is completely different about this outbreak compared to SARS is the flow of information and the readiness of people to actually get into gear and do things like you know, there's two labs in Australia which have grown the virus and they're starting work on vaccines in University of Queensland. They're developing novel tests and, you know, so things have rolled out just immensely quicker than what happened in SARS where it took months. So I, I think here, I you know, I'd really love to see it all sort of wrapped up in six months, but I, you know, could be wrong. I mean, that no. sounds really positive, but six months for the kind of impact that it's having on China's economy it, at the moment. It, it wouldn't mean that all of the measures that we have now are the same. Yeah. You know, I think one of the key things is that you have to have to be reactive and dynamic in the in the response, and that's pretty mm. normal, you know. So like Nick said, as we learn more about the virus, if we found out that, it, you know, most people infected weren't didn't develop as serious symptoms and it was only a small proportion that ended up getting pneumonia and going to hospital, we might go, oh, okay, you know. So we, we're going to learn a lot in the next couple of weeks and months and I think we will tailor our response to fit and we will adjust. But I, I can't see us sort of working like this for long periods. But it, it is a marathon and not a sprint often. So with the comparison from SARS to the current outbreak, it is important to remember that back when SARS happened, China was not as important to the world economy or as integrated into the world economy as it is now. Mm. So now that we see a lot of more Chinese tourists and business people traveling around the world, and it's 
now such so important to the world economy. So the effect of that will be quite different. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it, there's lots of examples of things that are made in China which really matter. I mean, it's just immense. Our, our economies, it's not only Australia, it's just a global connectedness with the economy. And a good example is someone in the US did an analysis um, of the medical, the medicine supply chain, and they worked out that of the 150 um, essential medicines, the generic ones, they were all made in China. You know, there are parts made on, um, say, ventilators, you know, critical valve that comes from China. Lots of the surgical the the P2 masks made in Wuhan. Mm. And, you know, so they're really important things that we've got to think about. You know, it's not only that, it's also bigger things, things that aren't related to health and medical supply chains, but I totally agree. I want to circle back to something you said earlier, Yun, about the effect on Chinese students in Australia. You know, we're here at the Australian National University. We're a week out from the start of semester. How would you rate university, not just ANU, but university responses to this? Have they been appropriate? Have they responded in the way that they should have? Each university has responded in their own way. There's no um, one response. So some universities have delayed the start of the term, but depends how long the outbreak lasts. They they might have to start without the, their students returning anyway. Um, some universities have started to using um, different platforms. So using more online learning, which is for people still stuck in China. So that's probably going to be very helpful. But one difficulties they've encountered is that uh, some of those platforms are blocked in China. So it's hard for them to access unless they use a VPN, which is illegal in China. So again, universities are encountering all these problems with um, how to responding to this. So I think um, I have to say, a lot, the universities are putting a lot of effort and resources into this, which are uh, fair enough because it is a very big sector and the income and revenue is very important for the university. Now, we do need to bring this discussion to a close, but I've got one final question for each of you. We've talked about SARS and and we've talked about coronavirus today, and this won't be the last of these types of virus, these types of diseases we see. So how can policymakers and governments and even individuals better respond to infectious disease outbreaks like this in the future? What have we learned from it? Well, I might um, go first on that, Martin, and um, I I think at a a supranational level, this response has demonstrated the criticality of multilateralism and international cooperation. So we've had um, certain uh, top-ranking members, in fact, the top-ranking member of our parliament, criticise the United Nations during his uh, recent term, uh, Scott Morrison, and uh, I think you cannot have an effective global response to infectious diseases without functioning international institutions that are supported and supported by rich nations. Australia's expertise channeling up into the World Health Organization um, and understanding at UN Security Council level of the um, global security importance of infectious disease um, and supporting those institutions and then um, having reasonable proportionate responses and engagement with our um, partners in China and the rest of the world um, um, that 
to me, is the most important learning. Um, and to say that um, whilst we might be an island, um, we are not a fortress. And um, the reason we haven't had person-to-person spread here is because um, we do have a really great health system that we can be proud of. Yeah, so for me, I think, well, governments are always trying to improve their response to infectious diseases, and it's a normal part of their job. It just doesn't get into the public public's eye so often, but there will be lots of learnings from this. This is the largest response we've seen in, I can't remember anything like it, Um, and it crosses sectors. It's engaged whole of government and it's engaged industry. And so I think there's going to be lots of learnings out of it. I think there'll be some very big debriefs and evaluations of this current response. In terms of what can what can government do, because they're the ones that are often in the driving seat for responding to infectious disease threats, they obviously just need to develop their plans and take the learnings out of this and make sure they're taking an all-hazards approach because it might not be a coronavirus next time. It might be something else. But, yeah, we are, you know, humans aren't, um, they're, they're not immune to these kind of threats and, you know, we can't control all elements of the natural world. So I, I think we just have to do our best and run harder, jump higher. I would also like to echo, yeah, global problems require global response. But also um, one is that transparency is very important. We should encourage countries to work with international institutions and fully report their actions and numbers correctly. And secondly, I think government really needs to think about how to ensure that the population listens to scientists rather than misinformation that's spread on the internet. That's a challenge that we are seeing increasingly. Wonderful. Well, I'd like to thank all of you for coming along and sharing your expertise and insights with us today. It's been a really illuminating conversation. So thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Thanks, Martin. And many thanks, Sean. Listeners, if you want to give us feedback about this discussion or you've got any questions or comments, please reach out to us. To join the discussion and get access to exclusive podcast content, you can join our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group. Just type Policy Forum Pod in the search bar. You can also find us on Twitter where we are APPS Policy Forum, that's Apps Policy Forum, or send us a message at podcast at policyforum.net. And if you're keen to play a role in improving responses to health emergencies through public policy, then Crawford School's Master of Public Policy might be just what you're looking for. In this program, you'll learn how to influence health policy outcomes in the public and non-government sectors in Australia, as well as internationally. You can find more information on the course and how to apply at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please hit the subscribe button. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite shows from. And feel free to leave us a five-star review if you're in that mood. We're always really happy to hear your feedback and we honestly read every single one that we get and always keen to know how we could improve things. So do let us know if you've got any thoughts. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio.